I tend to gravitate towards 4,500 foot to 7,000 foot uh, range in elevation. And, and that's really just traditional Coos country with, uh, you know, yellow grass slopes on the south faces and then uh, thick oak juniper country on the north faces. That's really my bread and butter, but that also seems to be hunted the hardest. So really more than anything, I'm targeting places that are getting hunted by rifle hunters less than the rest of the places. When you get through the summer and, and these deer start, they lose their antlers, start to grow velvet. You know, all those places that I found bucks in the wintertime, if you go back to those same places, very close to where those bucks wintered, those bucks will almost always be there in the summer, late summer in velvet. But many times they'll actually start spending a bunch more of their time in the open country that is very close to that, that thicker north slope country. In most cases, when I, I begin a stalk and I get over on the same hill that he's on, I realize that it's almost never what you think it is over there. So you have to be flexible and, and capable of adapting. And that's really the biggest, as a successful archery hunter, you know, I'm not saying that that's me, but I think a successful archery hunter, that's probably the single most common denominator, I think it's adaptability. You know, I read, a, I read a study somewhere, and this wasn't for coos deer, this was for uh, Eastern Whitetail, but, and I believe it's very similar to coos deer. Like a, an average big mature buck only breeds three or four does every rut. I found that surprising, but after thinking about it a while, really not all that surprising, just because like the younger deer actually may breed more deer. Hey guys, real quick before we get into this episode, I need you to do me a couple of favors. First, go give us a review on iTunes. Can't stress it enough. It's really, really important for me to help keep this free and to help me keep it going. Next, get involved with your hunting rights. Go join Howlful Wildlife. Super simple. Takes a couple minutes. You can even do the free membership. I don't care, but be involved. Lastly, I want you to do yourself a favor and up your shooting game go get you some Phoenix shooting bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%. That's all I got for you. Let's get into this episode. So we're going to talk coos deer today. We got uh, Creed Krishnat. And uh, Creed is, is known for taking some uh, some pretty nice bucks. And we're going to talk uh, We're going to talk to him, pick his brain a little bit, and see what, uh, what we can squeeze out of him. So uh, why don't you give us a little rundown about yourself and uh, what you do, and then we'll go into it. Uh, well, I am 33 years old. I live in a small little town called Alfreda down in the southeast corner of Arizona, Cochise County. Um, I actually make electricity for a living. So I work at a, at a coal-slash-natural-gas-fired power plant, and... Uh, been doing that really most of my adult life and when i'm not doing that i'm uh raising a family and trying to keep my wife happy and i'm not always succeeding at that <laughs> and then uh and then i'm i'm trying to hunt you know and that's that's really my passion that's what i live for and and the coos deer is right in the center of all of that i i, I mule deer hunt and elk hunt and all that good stuff when i can but even when I'm I'm hunting those animals, my mind is typically on coos deer. It seems. Yeah, they they have a way for getting 
getting underneath the skin there, you know, that you always hear about people talking about, I'm like, Oh, you know, it's just a small deer, little rack and this and that, blah, 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 blah. but those who are in the know, know there's something about yeah. who's there, you know, there's something about the, yeah. the terrain they occupy, the way they live, how cagey they are, what a, you know, the opponent that they present, the challenge that they present. I've always loved them. Like from the first time I ever hunted them. So, yeah, they, they present a challenge that's just different than any other. Uh, it's, it's unique, and and it just it really challenges you. Uh, you know, I I primarily hunt them with a bow, and uh, I mean that's that's another that's like next level challenge. But you know, I I really just I don't know how to explain it, but it, it gets inside of you, and and it just doesn't leave, I and mean, it consumes your soul, consumes your mind. It just that's what they do to you. I know for me, one of the things I love about coos deer is that they're a whitetail that you're spotting stalking for the most part. Yeah. And that opportunity, yeah, I, actually, we we were just talking about South Dakota. We do that there for, you know, Midwest whitetail. But it's like a, it's just the fact that you you're, you're still have the same it's a lot of the same behavioral things that a whitetail there will do. Coos deer actually do. Most people don't even know it. Like they make the rubs, they make the scrapes, they make the, you know, they, they fight, they stay in small groups. They don't have like harems, like a, like a mule deer will have. They're way cagier. And I just, I love them. I love them. I'm with you. For me, they're always been a great animal to hunt. And um, anyway, so I have you on because you do like to hunt them with a bow. And I, I really wanted to pick that apart. We did. I just did a, a, a little rifle episode that uh, we'll be releasing tomorrow, I think. And we could talk about some rifle hunting stuff too, but I like the fact that you hunt them with a bow. And we know that December and January is coming up soon. It's like the best time to go after them. Well, maybe not the best time, but it's the most fun time in my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I would say that you know, 90% of the people who hunt them would prefer to do it in January, uh, much like yourself. I'm different. My favorite time to be hunting them is actually in August, September. Because they're on a pattern. <laughs> yep. They're they're visible. It, it really comes down to them be, them being visible. They haven't been hunted in months. Very few other people out and about. I mean, just most people are not willing to get out there and Right. Run around in the heat. Right. So, the snakes are the heat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Snakes is a big one too. So I just, I love getting out there and look, looking at them in velvet and then you can scout. So if, if you're, if, if you find a big deer in, in late July, early August, I mean, you know, he's going to be there opening day of the archery season. Now, unfortunately, a good majority of the deer really aren't fully developed antler wise that first week of the, of the uh, archery season, but many are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's really the only downfall to it is, is antler development. And that changes from year to year uh, here, three years ago, most every buck that I hunted um, was fully developed first weekend of the season. It was a r- really dry year that year. I, I'm not sure uh, why, it seems like on dry years they develop sooner, but the last two years they were really late to develop. Most of them, not all of them, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I I really enjoy hunting them in the velvet. But obviously, I love hunting them 
in the, in the rut as well, or just any, any time I can hunt. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like to hunt them. So let's talk about that early season, even, even though it's, it's a ways off for anybody who's going to be listening to this now. What are some of the things that you're doing to locate big bucks? Let's start there. Like what, what kind of habitat are you looking into? What, what are some of the terrain features and pieces of the puzzle that you're looking for to find areas that hold the deer that you want to hunt? Well, as you know, and, and many people know, whose deer, they're pretty diverse. They, they're living at this point from the desert floor in, in many valleys of southern Arizona up to the very top of the highest peaks in, in all these Sky Island mountain ranges. And then up all along the Mogollon Rim in central Arizona. So you can really pick your poison. If, if you want to hunt in the desert, uh, there's places to hunt them, in, hunt them in the desert. If you want to hunt the high pine country, there's places to hunt them in the high pine country. And I hunt all of it from the bottom to the top. It, it makes no difference to me. I, I'm just out, I'm looking for quality deer and you find them in all of it. I tend to gravitate towards 4,500 foot to 7,000 foot uh, range in elevation. And, and that's really... It's just traditional coos country with, uh, you know, yellow grass slopes on the south faces and then uh, thick oak juniper country on the north faces. That's really my bread and butter, but that also seems to be hunted the hardest. So really more than anything, I'm targeting places that are getting hunted by rifle hunters less than the rest of the places. So that could be very just far from a road deep rugged wilderness country and and it's just for obvious reasons there are very few people hunting it it could be places that are just completely getting overlooked like driven right by mm-hmm. or it just it isn't a lot of country so sometimes efficiency is the name of the game so most coos hunters are trying to get to a place where they can look at as much country as they can. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's places where you're going to get up and you look and, and it's just one small drawer, one small canyon, that, and, it, and it could be holding a big deer. And, and the reason for that is no rifle hunters taking the time to go and look in that one small draw because it's, it's inefficient. And then... So, you know, sorry to cut you off. So yeah, I, you've said it twice more. now, rifle hunter. When you're looking for your August spots you're paying attention to where people spend time hunting with the rifle during the rifle seasons and you're avoiding those areas. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah. And the same thing goes for the January season. It's probably more so in the January season. So Mm -hmm. really what I'm looking for is when I go out, let's say early or late summer, early August, and I really start trying to build inventory of bucks, I'm looking for as many five, you know, the the places that are going to hold five, six, seven year old deer. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, those places are getting fewer and far between people and, and archers definitely, but rifle hunters have become so effective. And I think back to like when I was in high school, um, hunting at that point in time, yeah, a, a handful of people did it, but it really wasn't cool. You just didn't have groups of guys really getting after it. You had guys that went out and, and, and went to deer camp, and they might have shot a buck or two, you know, out of a group of eight. Now it's just a cool thing to do, and, and everybody's getting after it, and they're getting after it the right way, which is 
is they're using their optics, they're getting high, and then and you know they're shooting a long ways, and and the deer they really don't stand a chance if they're going to be living in a place that is easily accessible or easily glassable. Now, if we're talking August, so I, I look for those places that I feel like some bucks are going to survive five, six, seven years, and typically. A big buck spot is is traditionally a big buck spot year after year if it's not, you know, if people aren't getting into it. So, mm-hmm. and, and I'm to the point in, I don't know if you want to call it a career, but I'm to the point in my life where I've been doing it a long time. And at all points in time, I know of, you know, a dozen to 20 plus deer that have the potential. So I'm all juggling all these different bucks. Like, well, it's been two years since I've gone and I've looked at the split G2 buck or, or whatever it is. He was what I think is four years old, two years ago. He, There's a chance he's a giant. So by, by now, or and then there's deer that I'm every single year, I am on top of finding that deer and seeing what he looks like. And so I'm really trying to target specific deer. That becomes very difficult uh, when you're archery hunting. But um, I'll be honest, a lot of the places that I have success in, uh, very often are, are very close to private land that you can't, it may not be the roughest terrain, but to get around that private land, the average guy is having to, having to hike miles. And that, that the majority of, of what I'm hunting is a lot of stuff like that, or it's just a long, nasty ways to get to a spot where you can actually look into that country. Uh, those okay. are really the two key points that I focus on more than anything. Okay. So you're betting on the fact that there's not going to be anybody there because of the difficulty to get to it. Right. Okay. So do me a favor, if you could try to, and of course, I know this is going to vary from place to place, but in a generalized way, or if you wanted to pick one of your spots in your head uh, and paint a picture of what a big buck Canyon or big buck thing looks like. So, you know, that, when I'm looking through something, I can say, you know what, this kind of resembles, it's got some of the features to what, you know, Chris, uh, Creed was saying about, um, you know, big bucks would hang out here. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So okay. it varies slightly depending on the time of year. So I'm just going to start in August or in, yeah. in like November, December, January, like winter months when they're hard horned. I tend to gravitate towards country that, there's there's one the one bush in particular it, it's called mountain mahogany and uh, i mean a big majority of the places i hunt is loaded with this stuff on the north slopes so if i can find some country with a bunch of maho- mountain mahogany that i feel like it's going to the average guy is not going to be making it to there and glassing at sun up anyways or sundown it's tough for me to say uh, this is what you need to be looking into because I've just had so much success in all of it. As long as there's not a high number of rifle hunters making it in there. So just, just secluded country or overlooked country mm-hmm. that I really like to see North slopes that those bucks can get into in the afternoon, you know, late morning and stay there shaded all day. Those are things that I, I key in on. And when you get through the summer and, and these deer start, they lose their antlers, start to grow velvet. You know, all those places that I found bucks in the wintertime, if you go back to those same places, very close to where those bucks wintered, 
those bucks will almost always be there in the summer, late summer in velvet. But many times they'll actually start spending a bunch more of their time in the open country that is very close to that that thicker north slope country. And some of them will stay in that thick north slope country all the time. Mm-hmm. But many of them will actually drift towards the open country that's nearby there. Open, grassy, they, you know, their antlers are in velvet. So my opinion and, and, and many others share the same opinion is that they don't like being in that thick stuff with their with their uh, velvet. velvet antlers. And then on top of that, everything, you know, for, for coos deer, that time of year when they're in velvet, everything is generally green. So the grass is green. They're actually grazing uh, a bunch and they will eat, you know, uh, yucca fruit or, or there's, they will browse some. But for the most part, in the mornings, you're going to catch them in the wide open feeding on green grass. Whereas once they go hard horned at uh, simultaneously, when, when they rub, the vegetation also is changing. So everything is drying out and they actually, their diet for the most part will change as well and go from green grass to, uh, you know, they, they'll start to eat stuff like mountain mahogany, which is a, a bush. So they're at that point, they're no longer grazing, they're browsing. And because of that, uh, many times they'll, you know, also because they're going hard horned, mm-hmm. they, they drift from that open country into that thicker country where they can actually eat brush rather than grass. That's, that's, you know, my experience. Right. How far away does permanent water, how close does it have to be to these buck sanctuaries that you're talking about? Well, ideally there's generally going to be water within half a mile, but tons of deer that I know about are, are living really there. And deer are weird. And it's the same for mule deer. They don't always water at the water that's closest to them. I know many times where bucks will actually, there's a water quarter mile away and they, and they just, the big bucks don't, don't use it for whether it's, maybe it's a metal tank. Maybe they, they, they travel as far as a mile and a half away. Uh, this is most deer and to go drink out a dirt tank and then and then you know then they'll drift back into the canyon that they're living in but i know of a few deer that live in very remote deserty locations that i know for a fact based on on trail cameras and and then actually watching them in their bedding areas they're traveling as far as three miles but that's extreme cases and yeah. and for most coos deer at least in southeastern arizona where there's cattle in most places and when there's not cattle, there's wilderness country where there's actually a deep, uh, high mountains where there's springs and springs, creeks. Yeah, yeah they, they're not traveling super far. I, you know, usually less than a mile, and in most cases, less than half a mile. Okay, cool. Well, let's let, let's keep going down this road of of the uh, the velvet buck. What is your primary plan of attack? I guess are you spotting and stalking them? Are you trying to ambush them? Are you setting up stands? Or are you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm 99.9% behind the glass and and then stalking. Okay. I that's just in many cases sitting a stand may be more effective, but at the end of the day, I I am trying to be as effective as possible. But I also I'm out there to enjoy myself, and and I'm just at home behind. Sitting, uh, you know, behind a tripod. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree with you. So, okay, so you spot and stalking them. You find 
you find a good buck, you've been watching them for a while. What first off, when you're watching them, what are the things that you're taking note of? What like what is it that you're doing in your head? What is the important part of patterning this buck that what do you want to know what he's doing? Well, first and foremost, um you know when I find a buck, you know, I'm looking at I'm obviously I'm judging the deer. Is is this the caliber deer I'm interested in? Is does he have the character? I mean, does he really, is really turn me on? And then after that, I look at, I start factoring in age immediately. Like, is this a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old deer? What the, and, and I'm guilty of it in the past. But what the, the, the last thing I want to do is to shoot a, like a three-year-old deer that has just amazing potential because I'm trying to hunt in places where I can find a deer and then keep track of him and watch him for two, three more years. And you really, you just can't control the other hunters or the deer. So in most cases, not most cases, but in many cases, it, it ends up not working out for you. But in some cases, it's worked out for me uh, big time. So if he fits the criteria of a shooter, mm-hmm. and one thing I take note of is, and, and I'm answering this question as if I, I think you asked it like, if I'm trying to pattern him, let's say right. I find him August 14th and the hunt starts in two weeks. One thing I, I take note of is, is what, what other bucks is he with and what do they look like? And I'm, I really try to absorb every detail about even those other bucks. Like, is that deer's tail brown? Is that deer deer's tail red? Because I want to know when on opening day, if I start glassing, I start glassing. And all of a sudden, oh, there's that three by four, that smaller three by four with the red tail. If I've seen him with that buck three other times, I'm going to assume that he's right there somewhere. And and so, you know, I may stay glued to that spot. For the most part, I will, I just take note of his general area. I take note of where he beds. And then, so I hear lots of times, it, it just depends on the caliber of deer. If, if this thing's like a mega giant, mm-hmm then obviously I'm going to, I'm going to be looking at it, me every opportunity I can. But, uh, one thing that I'm guilty of is when I find a good deer, because I know that coos deer, uh, generally have a very small home range and, and when they're in velvet, they're all, they're very easy to find again. In many cases, I actually may not go back and look at them until opening day and 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 rather than going back and looking at the same deer over and over and over again trying to to, to pattern him per se i i use a lot of my time looking for other deer like i i try to create a plan a b c d and e and and uh and hopefully uh you know after if i go and look at other bucks and try to find other bucks um maybe I'm hoping, you know, one of them is just a, a mega giant, you know, and it doesn't always work out that way for me. In most cases it doesn't, but, um, I, I have, because I've built such an inventory of up and comer deer, mm-hmm. it's very time consuming to go, you know, I have a family, I have a very, a job that keeps me pretty busy. So my time really at this point in time is limited. Um, so every, every opportunity I have to go out and look, I'm trying to go check a bunch of other bucks from the previous year or two years off the list. Okay. What did he do this year? What does he look like this year? And, uh, you know, so, okay. Opening day coming around. 
Well, the that that big that real big typical that I found back on August 14th, I'm going to go back in there and I'm going to hunt him. He's the best deer I know about. And uh, I I took a risk and I didn't go back and look at him. Um, you know, the last three or four times I scouted, but I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that he's there and in most cases they are. That it, it just they, there's nobody, and I'm not going to say there's nobody, but there's very few people out and about bothering the deer. Um, there's no, uh, there's really no other hunters other than maybe some bear hunters or something uh, that are out and about. Uh, so they're very, the deer, and, and if they do get buggered when they're in velvet, many times after a day or two, they, they'll they'll kind of drift right back into the area that they were in. Mm-hmm. So obviously you watched plenty of deer. When you, when you found the buck that you like, or it doesn't even have to be a buck that you like, but do you find that those deer use the same beds, the same travel corridors, the same, like, I'm trying to help the, the, the listener develop Um, a system as to what to do and then take it to the next level, which is the actual stock. Um, just to, so I'm, kind of clarify to you where i'm trying to get at with this um, yeah right no yeah go ahead and finish i'm sorry no 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 um I, i'm pretty much finished so like like when, when you're patterning them is there a what are the things like i had asked earlier is like, what are the things that you're looking at and putting in your mental rolodex that you can when it's time to actually make the stock what you know give you the tools to plan that stock well, it is very common for them to bed down in the same bed or the same general vicinity. Uh, I mean, that, that, that is fairly common. Um, so, I, you know, when I do watch them bed, I, I always, I do take note of that. Um, one, one big thing that I, I take note of is, you know, hunt, hunting coos deer really is done, you know, for me, mostly through my optics. So, Mm-hmm. Um, prior to making a stock. And then once I make a stock, everything changes, but it's really all about being able to look into, into certain bits of country from as many different angles as possible. So let's say that, you know, I, I, there's, there's these, this group of bucks and, and two of them are shooters, or there's this one big, you know, non-typical, I really want to hunt. And I glassed him from this point because this is the most obvious point to look at the most country. Well, well what? Let's say I saw him from there and, and just a glimpse, and he and he, you know, he disappeared. And then I glassed him there again, and he and he and he keeps rolling around, which is pretty common. Like if if you're glassing from one hill and you and you see this buck for the first hour of the morning, and then he rolls around to the north side of this base, and then you go back and you're like, all right, I'm gonna try to find him again in the morning. And you find him and he rolls around again to the north side of the face. Like for me, that's very common for them to do it. Uh, So what I'm always doing is even from the first time that I found the deer is I'm looking around at other vantage points. So, I mean, I, I memorize every possible vantage point in the area. And then, uh, so let's say I saw him twice. I saw him roll around the north side of his face. I'll actually just, instead of sitting there and glassing, you know, just doing the same thing, expecting a different result, I'll go and I'll just make sure I'm sitting on a, on a, on a ridge or a hill that looks into that country from, you know, to where he's going. So I I might not expect to see him until eight o'clock that morning, but once he gets there at eight, 
maybe, I, you know, hopefully I'll get to watch him bed down and then I can plan my day around that. So, and many times they typically kind of drift towards slightly more gradual country if there is some of that around. And when you get to the the high country of, of these bigger mountain ranges, that may not exist. So they, they're going to live where they live and you sort of just have to kind of work with what they're going to give you. But if it's on the bottom half of these mountain ranges and maybe they're in that, that more gradual open country, many times they really just sort of drift um, that time of year. And by drift, I just mean in, in a small quarter mile area. So it's just a matter for me of, of getting getting up and, and finding them. Um, and if I can't find them, then I've got my three or four other vantage points. So I'm going to make sure I get on that day and try to locate them. And, and I'm really, I'm talking about August here. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the season, my approach changes just slightly. I mean, we can get into that if you like. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, we're, we're, I'm going to hit on that here pretty soon. And I want to talk about the roots and and your your tactics for that. Okay, so you found the buck. What is the criteria that you need to have in place to say, okay, now's the time I'm going to go stalk this buck? Like, what do you need to be going right for you? You know, do you just go just go in, or you, or you are you uh, you looking for a specific situation? Yeah, so you know my approach has changed some at this point in you know my life or hunting career. I I make probably ten percent of the stocks that I made when I was like in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I'm way more picky about when I'm actually going to make a stock. So first for me. And, and, and it does change if I have a spotter. Like if I if I have a spotter, I may actually start my stock. And by say I say starting my stock, I may just get on the backside of the mountain that they're on way sooner if I can communicate with my spotter. But for the most part, I really don't even like to do that because I want them to bed down. So if if they're not on a hot doe, they're gonna they're gonna lay down. That's just the reality of coos deer. They're gonna lay down. So. 90% of the time I'm sitting there, I'm watching them until they bed. And in most cases, I'm going to sit there on t- after that for a good hour and hope that they get up and sort of reposition themselves and rebed again, maybe 15 yards away, maybe the same bush. And when they do that, if I look at it, if it looks like they're going to be in a spot that's going to s- stay relatively shaded for, for hours, then I feel comfortable that they're going to stay there. So I need them to not be mobile um, be, because it takes so much work to get you. If you have to stay out of sight, you got to get around. Like let's say they're betting on a, on a, on a face, a North face. You have to get around the South side of that ridge that they're on mm-hmm. and out of sight for a long time. And, and they're really small and the grass is really tall and they don't have these big, you know, 18, 24 inch tall antlers like a mule deer has. So, it's tough to see them if you don't know exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. So I typically wait until they're no longer mobile, bedded where I think they're going to be bedded for the majority of the day. At that point, it's like, okay, that's number one on that criteria checklist. Are they in a position that they're going to stay? Mm-hmm. Once they are in that position, then the next thing is wind. So if it's just really early in the morning, in most cases, I'm not going to make a stock unless he just happened to bed like 
relatively close to me. It's something that I can move in quickly. But what I don't want to do is get myself within a hundred yards and the wind change on me. And, and, and that's really the biggest, that's the kryptonite to archery deer hunters of any species is the, right. as you know, wind. So I need the thermals to be rising. So, and, and many times that's not until 10, 11, 12 o'clock in the day. And then I'm always approaching from above, uh, like 95% of the time I'm coming from above them, not below them. I do not want to be below them where I, you just, you'll never be able to see, not never, but it's very difficult to see, see them if you're below them because the grass is tall, they're small. Then and thermals are generally going to carry the wind up to them from you. And then I really want the wind direction to be relatively stable. So at like at this point in my career, I'm no longer the run and gun type of guy. Like, let me get four or five, six stocks in today. And one of them is going to work out. It's no longer that. If I get one or two stocks in a week, I feel really good about it. And, and, and at this point, because I'm so meticulous and so uh, picky about when I'm actually going to make a stock that my success rate. And when I say success rate, I'm getting within shooting range unnoticed is way, way above 50% at this point, but I'm only making stocks because I'm, I'm generally stocking target deer or, or just or bigger mature deer. I really don't want to take any risk at blowing them out. It's no longer me stocking four or five, four year old deer that really are just at average. So uh, in a day, you know, so, um, wind, you know, they got to be bedded, no longer mobile. And man, at any point that can always change. So you, you have to be flexible, but, and, and able to adapt, but no longer mobile. I want the, the thermals to be rising and wind to be generally stable. Now in the mountains, uh, you, and, and I'm sure you're aware, but most people that hunt in the mountains often know when is the wind ever stable, you yeah, know, it just never. Yeah. So if, you know, I get a general idea of which direction the wind's blowing. In most cases, it's really not blowing straight uphill, like straight south. It, it just doesn't happen. And so predominantly in this region, it blows out of the southwest, but but not always. And so I get a, I get a rough idea of where, if he's in a position that I can shoot. So if he's in like just the nastiest, thickest hill ever, and you got to get 10 yards from him to shoot, I really won't even bother. I know he may be the only deer I'm interested in the area. So I may sit there and I may watch him until dark very or knowing very well that I'm probably not going to stalk him that day. That's just the nature of, of hunting coos deer with your bow, especially big mature deer that you do not want to blow out. But if he's in a position that I feel like I have some shooting lanes, you know, 60, 70 yards or closer, then uh, then I'll go ahead and decide to make the stock. And in my mind, when I leave the glassing area, I decide, well, the wind's blowing from, you know, from his right or, you know, facing him from the right to left. I'm going to have to come up, up and over the hill, but on the left side of him. And, and so I make that decision when I leave, but many times when you get on the hill that he's on, it, it's, it, or, or like on the backside, you realize, or near the top, you realize that the wind really isn't doing what you thought it was doing. Many times I'll, I'll take 10, 15 minutes of really not putting myself in any danger of being busted and let the wind and just take note of the wind the entire time. 
And in that 10 or 15 minutes, it never, it never blew from the right to the left at not one time. Then I know, okay, it might be blowing 270 degrees. You, you know, it might be switching directions in a 270 degree radius, but that other half of the, the, the rest of that radius, the wind actually wasn't blowing that direction. So um, I should be safe. So although I say never, I always come from above, many times it ends up being I'm side hilling towards the deer at, from his same elevation. If, I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. But, but before I ever leave, it, you can try your best to memorize it, but it's always different when you get there. Mm-hmm. But I completely memorize, you know, the hill that he's on. If that, and in many cases, I'll take pictures, multiple pictures on my cell phone. Um, but I, I memorize every distinct landmark possible. Like there's one big century plant laid over. There's one big green rock or there's one big dead tree. He should be southwest of that by 40 yards. Or So I, I memorize all of that. And then when you get over there, so that's one of the hardest parts about it is memorizing all of that. Because when you're moving, you know, you're thinking about a million things. You're you're nervous about the stalker. Am I going to blow him out? Then you get up and leave. But you, it's, you know, you got to be focused and uh, it's critical to remember what it looked like over there. So once I get over there and I start, you know, making that Many, many times I've gotten on the same hill as them and realized this is absolutely not going to work. And in the early part of my uh, archery, you know, I keep calling it a career like I'm getting paid for it's, it or it's something. It's fine. I say archery career all the time. It <laughs> makes sense. People uh, understand what you say when you say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I, I, you know, in the past, it, it did not matter. I, I'm committed to this. I was going to, I'm going to make it work. So, and man, it just didn't work out uh, a bunch of the time. So now, and if I get over there and it is just, it's apparent, it's just not going to work. Then I leave, I back out and I go right back to where I was watching him from and I'll, and, and I'll watch him some more. Or if I've got a spotter and that comes down to, I, I hunt with very few people and many times I'm solo, but you cannot be a good hunting partner because if you have somebody that's willing to stick it out and watch you stalk and, and be your spotter, all day long. Those, those guys are hard to come by and, and, and guys that can give good directions and, and actually stay in the glass. And, and those guys are hard to come by. So if you have somebody like that, it ups your odds a large amount. And I have a few guys like that, that I, I hunt with occasionally a few family members and a few really close friends that are like family members. And, uh, you know, if they're there, that helps a bunch. And, and I may just stay put until, conditions change or the buck actually gets up and feeds and, and rebeds 40 yards to the right where I, I, okay, I will have a shooting lane if I take this angle because the, the, the wind, this is the only angle the wind's going to let me take or, or that there's more of a cliff than I realized I can't come off and approach from here. So in most cases, when I, I begin a stalk and I get over on the same hill that he's on, I realize that, um, it's almost never what you think it is over there. So you have to be flexible and and capable of adapting. And that's really the biggest as a successful archery hunter, you know, I'm not saying that that's me, but I think a successful archery hunter, that's probably the single most common denominator. I think it's uh, adaptability, right? You know, so I agree. I'm not sure that I answered your question fully, but Um, I think you did. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> um, let's switch gears a little bit more. Let's uh, let's go to let's let's look at the 
the late season. Let's look at that end of December, your January hunts. Most of the time, and maybe maybe you know something different than I don't, but most of the time, those bucks that you found in the early season aren't typically in those same spots anymore because they're out chasing those. But what what is it that first off? Let's let's address that for a second. What what have, what do you notice? Because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, well, um, you know what what I notice is. In the region that I live in, and and I hunt a pretty, not a real big radius around me, but I, I do hunt, you know, five, six units down here pretty regularly. I'll tell you this much, like, you know, I, I hate mentioning units a whole lot, but I right. live in unit 38, which is, is pretty, 38. I mean, if you just go by odds, yeah. like rifle odds, it's pretty cruddy. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I live here, it's my home, I hunt it, but I, it, I've hunted overall, there several times, yeah. Yeah, it's considered a pretty cruddy unit, so I'm a little less hesitant to mention it. But uh, I've killed more deer actually in 38 than any other unit. Uh, just, but it's my home unit, so it, you know that's just that's the reason why. But the rut here, man, it, you know, like if I go and hunt north of I-10 on on, on some of these units north of I-10, it seems like the rut is, it, it's sort of like elk, like you know, unit, you know, let's say unit one or unit nine or or unit 23, those units are known for having a very strong vocal rut. Mm -hmm. And in some of these other units, like, you know, the mid-tier, what, you know, mid-tier units, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it, you know, I hear com people complaining that the rut never happened. Obviously we know it's happening because there's, there's calves every, uh, right. every spring. But so, so 30A, like these, these units that I live in and I hunt a lot, the rut is honestly generally pretty poor and very spotty like when, when there's a hot doe you know everything goes you know the bucks are going nuts obviously but for so for the most part where i find them in august they don't leave a lot even during the rut they okay. now they may leave that drainage and go to like two drainages over because there's five six more does there than you know or whatever but or there is a hot doe there but for the most part, like, I'll, like I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, so my best rifle buck, since I've been an adult, I have not drawn a, a rifle coos deer tag in Arizona, but I have gotten two leftovers. And so on one of those leftover tags, the previous season, I, I went up into this big basin. I archery hunt very similar to how I rifle hunt. I, I get up and I get on the nasty ridges and I, I cover country and I glass. And well, I found this, really good buck just he was chasing a doe and he was running off a small but i mean it was classic full-blown rut it was awesome and i came very close to killing that deer but i i didn't get it done i'm sorry that was two seasons prior to the year i killed him okay. the very next season my younger brother well uh somebody that i knew actually set a trail camera and i didn't realize that at the time they had a trail camera in the bot in the in the creek bottom underneath that boat that basin so that very next year in velvet they got a they had a few pictures of him and they showed them to me and, and knew exactly what bucket was so i was like okay you know he's still alive and I, I was able to get out of them where their camera was at so i had a rough idea of this deer's home range and uh the next year, you know, we, we actually targeted that buck and we did not see him. We hunted it pretty hard, did not see him. So the following year, I actually got a leftover tag. 
And so I had no intention of hunting that buck. I had intentions of hunting a totally different deer. And, uh, this, this, the, 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 the other buck was a lot further into that country. So it was a rough road getting in there. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually, we actually driving in actually got stuck. Mm. And so here we are at, at four 30 in the morning down in this Canyon bottom with no service. So I said, well, we're stuck. We're not going anywhere. And uh, I don't have a winch. Um, and we're like stuck, stuck. So I actually climbed up on a ridge and, and I said, well, I'm going to make the morning of this where we're at. I'm not going to waste the opening morning. So I climbed up there and started glassing up into that basin that I had almost killed that buck in two Januarys prior where he's running really hard. And boom, there he was. So I went over there and, and I shot him with the rifle. But I, he was 100 yards from where he was running two years prior. Mm. So I, I just, I mean, that was his home. It just was. So in many cases, they really are right where they rutted and, and or within a few drainages. That's my experience. Gotcha. So just to play devil's advocate a little bit. So what do you think the phenomenon is that guys are always like, we see all these bucks in the, in the rut and these deer seem to come out of the woodwork. And then the rut there's when we go to hunt there and there's no rut going on, we can't find deer. We can't find bucks, but we see the does. Yeah. Well, so, so my, my theory on that is cause I, I experienced the same thing is the, the bucks that they're seeing, they very well may come from five miles away. And I do think that happens and it, and it happens quite a bit, but when I'm, I'm speaking about big mature bucks, if they're, if they're on those does, again, they could have come from five miles away, but there's a, a very high likelihood that they're just two, two drainages over up, up at the top of the, you know, or, in one particular bowl, there's one buck that's living in this 500 yard circle all fall. And then it's really just a, a just a hop and a skip over to all the does. That That's my opinion on, on, on that particular situation. So it, it may seem like there's no does or bucks in there. And by in there, you mean on those few faces and those few drainages, but if it's half a mile away, um, in, in one, you know, nasty pocket, if that buck's spinning his, his, uh, fall there, mm -hmm. um, that, to me, that's, that's, that's not really leaving his area by much. Do you, I, gotcha. you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, that's a great explanation. What kind of behavioral characteristics of coos deer could you count on to help you score one? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You know, like like right now we're in uh, we're in rifle season. So I'll I'll talk about that first. Um, we're in the in right in the in the middle of rifle coosier seasons. Right. First and foremost, they like to lay down a lot during the day. So, I mean, for you know, that's uh, I know sometimes that's a given for guys who hunt coos deer, but for guys who haven't been doing it much, I think that that might be the biggest. The, the biggest obstacle for them is they don't quite understand that the deer, especially mature bucks are really not on their feet very much during the day. They, that's just the reality of it. So when they are on their feet um, and they're all different, but in most cases, you know, early in the morning and late in the evening, that that's, that's typical deer behavior. But, but, but sometimes it's, 
very little in the in the mornings and evenings, but at one or two in the afternoon, uh, you know those bucks are up and they 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 they've got to use the restroom just like us, so they get up and they you know relieve themselves and you know they nibble a bit and and that might be the only opportunity you have to you know even see them that day. So like for coos deer, whether it's archery hunting or rifle hunting, for me like going back to camp midday or going and taking a nap. I think you're putting yourself at a disadvantage to not be in the glass literally all day or in between glassing sessions, moving from, you know, glassing point to glassing point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, deer are very, the coos deer are very inactive. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's a behavioral a characteristic of, of a coos deer or, or white-tailed deer or mule deer, but they just aren't on their feet much. So, Another behavioral characteristic uh, for me, and I've heard, a, you know, I've, I've said this before and, and I've actually gotten messages back like, well, hey, I killed this buck on a south face. And then, well, of course, you know, the, yeah. the, the deer do live on south faces. And in many cases, they won't leave the south face. But the, the vast majority in traditional coos deer country, that's not the very top of Mount Graham. Or, and that's not at, down in the desert flats. This is just traditional coos deer country, those deer, those and bucks, but definitely mature bucks, the majority of them in my experience are going in, you know, going to be in shady north or northeast or northwest pockets the vast majority of the day. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're looking into those into those places for the majority of the day and you're in and you know, it, it's not somewhere that every there's like four guys a hunt looking in there that were just really killing everything that lives in that pocket. You know, your odds for success are going to go up. That's during any time of the year, including January. Mm-hmm. And they in the sun a little more in January, but they, they still roll into those North shady pockets um, late morning and stay there the mo- the majority of the day. And now, like you you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that they're uh, that they're whitetails, and and that, that that's super accurate. So during the rut, they do what whitetail do. They make scrape lines. They they rut the same. Like like one buck, he's not getting a harem of eight does and and breeding those does the majority of the rut. He's you know, he finds a hot doe, he stays with a hot doe until he breeds her and, you know, he'll breed her multiple times for maybe a few days even. And then he'll leave and he, and he'll start cruising and, and working those scrape lines again. And, and then if he finds another hot doe, you know, I read, a, I read a study somewhere and this wasn't for coos deer. This was for uh Eastern whitetail, but, and I believe it's very similar to coos deer is like a, an average big mature buck only breeds three or four does every rut. I found that surprising but after thinking about it a while really not all that surprising just because like the younger deer actually may breed more deer because uh absolutely yeah because the 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 younger deer a lot of times will hang with doe groups so where a big buck will go and he'll find and it's he i don't know what the obviously i don't know what the thinking process is because to me the young man's game seems like a more efficient way of doing it. Go hang out with a bunch of, go hang out with a bunch of chicks and uh, as they become ready, you know, try to breed them. But mature bucks. And I did studies on this. I remember when I was getting my master's degree, I looked into it quite a bit. 
the yeah the you're you're 100 correct the the big bucks will actually they do more cruising and in search of a doe that is ready right. versus hanging out near does that might become ready soon yeah. and as a result the older bucks are not necessarily the majority of the breeding population the other the other thing about that is too they're also not the majority of the male population to begin with the the the, right. the lion's share it isn't within the that mid-range you know the your uh two to four year old deer you know that's going to be where the most most bucks are like as far as age class is concerned that's going to yeah. be the most the, the highest yeah. density of the population will be in that age class now i've experienced this i can't even friggin' tell you how many times where a buck and even a buck and a doe, let's say he's with a doe that he's breeding, they go and bed down. And then I start my stalk, you know, whatever. I wait a while. I've even done the hour thing. And I start my stalk, and for no reason, they get up and go. Yeah. And he starts Not chasing absolutely. her all over the freaking hillside. So for me, when I'm hunting in the rut i don't wait anymore because that that scenario is on mule deer on coos deer it has burnt me so many freaking times like and you know i told you i was gonna go i'm gonna go guide in south dakota it happens to me there like i don't really wait for them to bed down the only time that i feel secure if they're in a bed where they might stay there a while is that from like i'm gonna say like 11:30 to like 1 p.m. If yeah, they're like if the, they're like bedded, the hottest part of the day. If they're bed, well, there is no hot. There is no hot in South Dakota, but yeah, no, uh, but um, yeah, maybe here that would definitely you know that would be the hard, hottest part of the day. It's the only time where I'm like, they're either just tired out because they've been running around all damn morning long, or like you said, the heat, the weather, whatever the case may be. That's the only time that I've seen that, like, if they're bedded down, eh, they're probably going to stay bedded down. But before that, forget about it. It could be 930 in the morning, and you're like, okay, this guy's been sitting there for an hour. I'm going to go do it. Let's go. Let's go make yeah. this happen. Got a spotter. You're freaking halfway there. Hey, he just got up and fucking chased that doe. It's like. Yeah. <sighs> well, that, that's, one of the biggest, that's one of the biggest reasons why I actually prefer hunting in August. Yeah. For yeah. That, that reason uh, right there. But, but the, the, so, you know, uh, my counter to that, and it's really not even counter cause there's no right or wrong way to do anything. Right. But like, like in my experience, the reason why I don't, I typically don't just go, but, but it, it just depends on the time of day. Mm-hmm. Like if let's say it's at sun up and I just, I'm going no, no matter what you, you know, you have no control of the wind. That's, that's the, like, that's, yeah. uh, yeah. That's the biggest problem, you know, cause that was me, man. I mean, that was me for a long time. It's I'm going, I'm going, you know, and like if it doesn't work out, I'm ready to get back up there and find another one. And yeah, I guess uh, maybe that's my thing. I'm not so, I'm not so worried about killing a specific buck that, uh, if it, if I blow it up, I'm going to be that upset, but yeah, no, I could see that, you know, if hundred percent, if you're targeting a very specific buck, like you have to be the way you're, you're describing yeah but i don't know like and 
I think my patience is getting less and less. It should be getting more as I get older, but it's, <laughs> I'm getting less and less patience for for that. But um, I don't know. I for me, I like I prefer them on the hoof. If I if I have a spotter, if I don't have a spotter, yeah. then I'm not even I'm not even freaking screwing with that. I mean, I have. Don't get me wrong, and I've been successful that way too. But I have a very good understanding how deer use landscape, and I pick where they're going to to be successful that way. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, if I have a spotter and I know it's somebody that I trust, I'll have them get me in position that's close to the deer, not not where I'm trying to stalk him like if he was in his bed, like trying to to converge on his locale. I want to get into a spot where I think he's either going to push over to or you know eventually walk past me or whatever the case may be. That's what I look for. I look for okay. There's a buck. There's a doe. They're over, they're here feeding. All the bedding stuff is to the left. Get me over here to the left. The wind looks good. Da da da. da you know, that's what I look for. I don't know if I'm ex- describing that well enough, but oh um, yeah, you did definitely. Just because it, it, it's like I said, so many times where I've been like, okay, cool, finally got this deer to go lay down. He's in a good spot. Um, he's only got one doe with him. There's no other eyes. I'm going, you know, and <laughs> it just goes, goes out the freaking <laughs> yeah. window, goes out yeah. the window. Um, it's, a, it's that, that, a, that's really the beauty of, uh, of hunting in general, but like archery hunting, uh, or any type of hunting, but is, and you really never know what the right or wrong thing was until after it's all said and done. And in many cases, you still, you're still, you know, in January. So I'm done in Arizona for the year. I shot a deer in January and it's like the most phenomenal year this year. Nice. Just because of all the moisture. I'm like, it, it is killing me to not have a tag just because of all the big deer I'm seeing, the big deer I'm seeing getting killed. You could come talk so, me in on the radio when I get down there. <laughs> all right. So anyways, in, I really hate like getting up two, 300 yards from where I know a buck's living and glassing from, like, I want to be back and let me, let me find him and then let him do what he's going to do for however long. And then when he's in a position I can move, then I'll move. So well, in January, um, my brother, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's been in the, he's been hunting mule deer for years and, and he's really starting to get into the, into the coos deer game. And, uh, so it's been nice cause I'm actually, I'm actually hunting with him a lot more because I, before you, I had a hard time being down hunting mule deer, you know, when I know I'm just itching to get back up into the coonster country. But anyways, he, he had already shot a buck and he's like, Hey, listen, this, this nice buck is right here. I've seen him multiple times. Like, let's go in there and kill him. And so we really was in the afternoon. So we, we went over that country and this country's rugged. It's very vertical. And he's like, we got to go up to here. And I said, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. That's, that's like right where you're saying he's living. Like, I don't want to do that. And right. he's like, no, just trust me. If we get up there, you know, I think we're going to see him up in there. And I'm like, I'm very uncomfortable with this, but you know what? It's your buck. I mean, you know, you're letting me hunt a buck that you know about. Let's do it. Uh, let's do what you want. So we get up in there, sit down to start glassing. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I see this big buck and he's up on the ridge above us. And he comes on, you know, through a saddle onto the ridge that we're on. I'm like, you guys are kidding me. 
So uh, I'll make the story the story quick because it can be long. But he he there was a, a small buck chasing a doe like on the same ridge as us, and he saw that commotion, so he ran down there and ran that that smaller buck off. And then while this was all going on, which this is sort of the beauty of the rut sometimes, but uh, it, you know I was able to slip in and uh, this buck he was he had after he ran that buck off, he really wasn't even interested in the doe. She obviously wasn't hot. Um, he just didn't want that little buck messing with her on his hill, you know? So mm-hmm. he just went back to, to feeding and, uh, and it was pretty windy, which, you know, was, was really the only reason I was able to pull this off, but he fed, um, he was sort of feeding right off the top of the ridge and I was able to just slip in and, and, and we sort of kind of converged and he, and he never saw me. His head was down when I realized, Oh wow, he's literally right, right here. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he finally, you know, turned his body to me and he was frontal and, you know, and I, 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 I didn't even range him. I just knew he was less than 20 yards, So I drew back and I finally lifted his head and, and then I just released and, uh, you know, I, I, I hit him perfect frontal and it, 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 it just like he, he collapsed onto his, like sat down like a dog and then just fell over dead. And then just, you know, but, uh, my point is, is, is there's really no wrong way or no right way to do it every single time. Like I, I know what works for me and I've been doing it for years. So I feel comfortable with uh, doing certain things, but you know, sometimes you, it's, it's okay to go out of your comfort zone. Like I did this time and, and it paid off. So, you know, that's just the beauty of, of hunting in general. Yeah, for sure. So it keeps this, keeps me doing it, you know, just different and exciting, you know, no, no, no days the same, you know? Well, awesome, man. I think, uh, that was some uh, good information. A little refreshing and get a little different uh, perspective. It's been a while since I've talked coos deer, and um, yeah, I appreciate your your knowledge and your insight on all of it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, and uh, I do have a question for you. So, sure, semi familiar with with you. I've, I've watched some videos and I've, I've listened to you speak before, and but you know, I, I've. I really have been paying attention to like your, is it how, yep. how, how for wildlife. So yeah. So what the overall, um, like what is your overall goal with how my overall goal with, uh, with how is to protect hunting for ever, you know, to make it so that it, it can't go away. Uh, what, what we're doing with our focus is, is basically we've given the sportsmen a voice and a way to connect with the decision makers. So in the past, let's say there was a, a bill, you know, okay. So like here they were talking about maybe getting rid of mountain lion hunting, um, bobcat hunting, bear hunting. And so this bill comes up. And in the past, the, you know, hunting organizations and so on and stuff before that would be like, hey, this bill there, go contact your legislator. Yeah. And that's fine and dandy, but most people are like, okay, who is that? What do I say to, <laughs> what do I say to them? 
And the other thing is, is that the person that's really making the decision on that specific bill? More than likely not. So the people that were taking the time to figure out who it was and figuring out what to say and so on and so forth, it, it still wasn't effective because we weren't reaching the right people. So what Hal has done is made that connection. We created the easy button for for those individuals that want to get involved. So now, and we also found that, found out that it's not only state specific because wildlife is holding a public trust for all of the United States. So it's not just, you know, if there's an issue in New York, uh, you know, trying to ban turkey hunting and you live in Arizona and you want to go turkey hunting there, or whether you want to go turkey hunting there or not, but you want to see those guys still have turkey hunting, you can get involved. You can have your voice heard. So, you know, like I said, we, we created the easy button. And what it is, is like a, a program that, I guess without getting into the exact detail of it. So I'll give you an example. So the mountain lion thing here, if you wanted to get involved in it, you come onto the website, you fill out your name and your email address, and maybe it's your phone number. It depends. The different bills require different things. And then there is a pre-written message. And all you have to do is hit send. And that's the easiest. Like you, That's all you have to do. And it's not a canned message. Like There's some action centers out there that where it sends the same email. And that email is something like, hi, this is... Uh, you know, so-and-so and on behalf of, and I'm not picking on Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, but I'm just, because it's the first thing that popped in my head, uh, you know, on behalf of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and, you know, with all these other people, the da 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 I'm opposed to this thing. Thank you. And it's the same message coming from the same server, from the same email every single time. So what we've done is we have eliminated all that. The any, any given bill that we get involved in will have, let's say, 200 messages, all different, with the same narrative uh, in one shape. Or, or depending on how complex the bill is, you'll be coming at it from different angles, too. And you, you hit send, it'll send a different thing. And it'll also send a different tagline. And it comes from your email address. So it's not coming from Howl for Wildlife. It never mentions Howl for Wildlife. It's coming from you directly to the decision maker. And not only that, let's say there's 15 people making a decision. There's a committee on that bill. Or let's say the Arizona Game and Fish Commission. It goes to all the members, not just one. Hmm. Um, and then we've made it also that that message is you're able, able to edit it. So you can add your own spin to it. Oh, I like what this says, but I want to add this to it. Or I don't like what this says at all. I want to add my own message. And you can put your own message. And it's super duper effective. In the past, the... Well, so we've heard this from the Fish and Game Commission. It's like, hunters don't get involved. It's always... The squeaky wheel is always the anti-hunting community. It's always the people pushing, pushing the agenda. You know, we just want to go about our lives. Sorry, my dog's going nuts. Somebody's at the front door. Um, he, uh, they, we hear the same thing over and over again that the squeaky wheels are always the, you know, the anti hunting, you know, and hunters don't get involved. 
And we're like, wow, this is, you know, this is crazy to us. We, we should be involved. This is something we're going to lose this if we don't get involved. And right. we thought about it like, man, there's 16 million hunters in, in the United States and like 70 to 80 million sportsmen. So that includes like fishing. Now think about it. Every time, let's say uh, a bill pops up and 16 million people send all the decision makers of that bill. Hey, we oppose this. Do you think we'd ever lose a single hunting thing ever? We never, we, we would never, we never would. In the time that we started, we only launched in January of this year. We have won or progressed forward every single bill that we've been involved in. Wow. Because people, and we don't have, you know, we have 30 or 40,000 people, I can't remember now, but like 40,000 people that are involved. If I could t- turn that 40,000 into the 16 million, they would never, they w- we would never lose, ever, ever. And uh, so that's, that's the main premise behind it. We're getting involved in a lot of other things. Uh, there's other things that we do, like we do educational stuff, like for people to show up to commission meetings. So for instance, again, well, I'll use that same example for here in Arizona. Before that commission meeting came up where they were uh, addressing the mountain lion and bear stuff, we had a Zoom meeting and anybody who wanted to join that would join on. And we had like 70 people get on that meeting and we told them, "Here, here's the talking points here's the arguments. This is how you should present yourself. This is how the, the fish and game meeting is ran. These are the procedures and you show up and we had, I don't know, like a hundred and something hunters show up to that meeting. And there was like 10 or 15 anti hunters. And it was the first time they had ever seen that. And we Mm -hmm. had this, we've had the same, story told to us when we went to Colorado, when we went to California and Washington, that there's been a, a, a crazy engagement from, from the hunting community. And it's, and we're just not even the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's like, if we can get, I, I honestly, my goal, my goal would be to get 20%, 20% of the hunters engaged. But I mean, I'm shooting for the 16 million, but if I can get Three million, I think. Yeah, I think we we'd be untouchable. Like, I don't think we would lose any more hunting. Not not uh, not unless there was a scientific reason for that hunting to stop. And and which in which which case we would we would support it. You know, you're telling me that's not a huntable herd anymore. Then I'm with you. Absolutely. So well, well, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I I ask. you know, like I'm guilty of, you know, like when it comes to podcasts, if the topic is, is moose hunting or, or, you know, I, I have limited time like everybody. So right. for the most part, I'm just not listening to moose hunting podcasts. That's just, I, I just don't have time to absorb that type of stuff for the most part. So I, I ask because, you know, this is a, a, a coos deer topic. This podcast was, it was, you know, primarily coos deer. So any individuals that are listening that, you know, are here to hear about coos deer, which would be myself if I was a, a consumer of this. I've never, I've never heard, I, I've heard a bunch about how, but I've never heard it put to me like you just put it. So keep doing what you're doing and, and, and I'll be sure to, to uh, be more engaged with that and, and do my part. So 
Anyway, you found me on. Yeah, I'll I'll keep sending. I'll uh, I'll start sending you stuff when it pops up. So that's like one of the things that we're really pushing home is that we want the coos deer hunter to care about what happens to the, you know, the coos deer hunter in Arizona. We want to care what's happening to the duck hunter in Arkansas. Right. Because because we're all in this shit together. Like we don't think that we're connected. Oh, hey, that doesn't affect me. You know. You know. Oh, uh, that sucks for that guy, but you know, I only, I only hunt bears, you know, or I only hunt, you know, ducks, or I'm a bird, I'm a bird guy, whatever the case may be. But that's the way they work, you know. They find the lowest hanging fruit in in a state that they think they can, then they replicate that in other states, and then from there it goes on to the next thing and their their whole it's a war of attrition they're really just chipping away at every single thing that we that we want to hunt and every single thing that we care about and it sucks too because hunting as you know or maybe maybe you don't because I've, I've met a lot of guys that don't know hunting is the main driving force for conservation and if you're anti-hunting you're pretty much anti-wildlife without right, knowing it, without knowing it yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, yeah, it's important for everybody to be involved and to pay attention to to everything that's going on. The, the time the time for us to sit back and, you know, I've told this story on the podcast a million times. Like when I first took Hunter's Ed uh, in New York when I was nine years old, you know, they they taught you to, to operate quietly and be in the shadows and not be out in the open. But you know what? Everything we do is out in the open now. Social media has... Um, has made it possible for everybody to see into our world and our photos, everything we do is weaponized against us. And they, they're very, very good at spinning the narrative narrative. They're very good at swaying people's minds. Well, they got a very easy job. So, I mean, just to give you an, for instance, and I want to take up two more, more of your time here, but they got a very easy, easy job. It's like, it's very easy for you to stick a picture up of uh, a mama bear and some cubs and put a quick tagline on it. And that is going to invoke a emotional response where we, we can't just put that up because how, how do you, how do you say that hunters, are the main driving force for conservation. We're the reason why you have public lands. We're you know the the money that comes for this is you can't put that in a in a in a meme. You know, like that that doesn't work. The burden of proof, I guess, you know, is way harder on us than it is on the other side. Like it's super easy to get people to be emotional about something, but it's very hard to be the voice of reason, show science show, you know, the integrity and so on and so forth. So we, we're always, and the other thing is they're always on the offense and we're always on the defense, which I hope to change here in, in the near future. Um, I got some plans, personal plans. I, I don't know if how will how for wildlife will be involved in it or not, but I've had plans to to be a more offensive, <laughs> that didn't sound good, but to be on the offense more. Yeah. So anyway, well, uh, again, man, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. And, um, if you want to get involved in Alpha Wildlife, it's, it's free to become a member. If you want, you just go on Alpha Wildlife and you just, uh, you sign up for a free membership. You could do a paid membership. 
uh, of course, we appreciate that. We have different ways for you to be involved or to get memberships. Like if you use like Onyx Maps or Go Hunt or any of those, um, you can join up and get that membership and you get our membership as well. It's a pretty neat program we got set up with those guys. Um, so what if you're already a member of one yeah, of those? They'll, they'll, tag, they'll tack on an extra year. So if you go to Halfa Wildlife right now, you want to go hunt like uh, Insider or whatever, you purchase it again and they'll tack on a year onto whatever time you have re- left onto your, onto your existing. Uh, same thing with, uh, with the Onyx. Only with Onyx, our deal is I think you save 20% to buy your next year's no, subscription. I will be a member shortly. Okay. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah, appreciate it, John. All right. Take it easy. Have a good one. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor. Go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you on the next show.